Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is brought to you in association with the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign. The Made to Be Measured campaign is to help us understand how much alcohol we're actually drinking. A single measure of Scotch whiskey is one unit of alcohol. The recommended weekly intake is 14 units. Scotch whiskey, it's made to be measured. We're happy to raise awareness and to help us savour our scotch. Find out more at scotch-whiskey.org.uk slash Made to be measured. The podcast starts now. Every Prime Minister before me has also used planes to travel around the United Kingdom because it's an efficient use of time for the person running the country so I can keep focusing on delivering for people. But if your approach to climate change is say no one should go on holiday, no one should take no, on a plane, I think you, a I think you are completely and utterly wrong. Am I? Right? That is absolutely not the approach to tackling climate there's change. There's a difference between actually, what we are doing, what we are doing, what we are doing is, is investing in sustainable aviation fuel as one of the new technologies like carbon capture and storage will, will, will help us make the transition. It's not about banning flying. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. Thank you for finding us. We're recording on Wednesday, the 2nd of August. I'm Kyla McDonald. Lovely to be speaking to you and thanks for being here on the podcast. Right, also here, Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to First Minister Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Good morning. And Andy McKeever joins us, who was Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Good morning. Dialing in from the Western Isles Bureau once again. We'll love to hear that, Andy. Once again from the Western Isles, yes, indeed. Why, why were you sleeping in a tent last night? Were you being punished for something? Well, um, my two, my, the oldest two of my four girls um, have been pestering me for a while about going camping. Mm. So um, I did what every, uh, you know, what every father who doesn't really have camping experience does, which is go to Decathlon. Um, <laughs> by... by <laughs> Buy, buy a pop-up tent, which it says gets put up in two seconds, right? Um, and went to a, a beautiful beach called Bosta, 
Uh, if you want to look it up, B O S T A in English. I won't. I will not spell the Gaelic spelling of it. Not because I can't, of course. Um, and uh, we set we set up camp at Bosta and uh, played a little bit of baseball on the beach. Uh, nice. Played some baseball. cards in the tent, and then went off to sleep. And you know, right. I've dropped them back at the house this morning, and here I join you. Great. Well, I mean, can thanks. I ask Andy just a serious question? I'm, I'm, I'm actually um, going my, our first family holiday. Oh yeah, uh, with my sister, brother-in-law, and their kids to um, Loch Lomond. Uh, we've got. You're not uh, camping with a six-month-old. Let me tell you we're that. You're not. I, I, listen, you'll not find me. You'll not find me camping at any point. That is not my idea of a good holiday. All right. Um, are, are, are the podcast listeners wanting to hear you and me comparing notes and children and you asking the advice in family holidays anyway let's, let's, behind, go let's go with it behind the scenes of Jeff and Andy it's a serious question actually right, right go on so we're going to Loch Lomond we've got these lodges going to be fantastic right and I wanted to know about the midges how's the midges <laughs> because we're being told by this uh, resort that the the midges are pretty bad, um, and I'm just wanting to understand from you, how are the midges, and what, what would well, we need to do to prevent getting eaten alive? Given that Callum is also from uh, these islands up here yeah. in the Western Isles, he will know that the Western Isles midgey is of a different calibre to all it's other midges in Scotland. Level. Next level. Next level midgey. So um, basically, what you want to do, the first thing you need to avoid uh, midges, Jeff, is wind. If it's yeah, warm and wet and there's no wind, I would just go home. <laughs> but if you've got a little bit of wind to protect you, the then other you're going to be fine. Is if you can get out on some water. As soon as you're out on water, not a midgey anywhere. So if you fancy, go for a swim, Jeff. Go, in, go into the loch. I tell you what, visit Scotland are going to be delighted <laughs> with you two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Do get in touch with us at Scotland. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, right. Uh, shall we crack on? Um, right. We had, first, let's start here. Uh, two things to start with, actually. First of all, Hamza Youssef will be on this podcast in two weeks' time. So we are recording. If you've missed this announcement, first of all, where have you been? Second of all, thanks for showing up late. It's better than not at all. Uh, but in two weeks' time, we're recording a special episode with the First Minister of Scotland, Hamza Youssef, in Edinburgh at Johnny Walker Prince's Street uh, with, for the first time, an audience of you, of listeners. Now, if you're a subscriber, a follower, you got first dibs on the tickets uh, to, the point, to the point that they sold out um, within, I don't even know, 24, 48 hours, something like that. So we're looking at whether we can add more of you in. Um, apologies in, in advance if we can't, but that is something we're working hard at. Uh, but anyway, Tuesday the 15th is when we're recording it. So Wednesday the 16th is when that episode will be available. Uh, this has all been made possible because of our new sponsorship from the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to be Measured campaign. It's all about understanding how much alcohol is in the drink that is in your glass. Uh, Graham Littlejohn from the Scotch Whiskey Association will be on the podcast today to explain a bit more about the campaign, and you'll be hearing it on the podcast over the next couple of months as well. So we're super excited about that. Thank you if you've got tickets, if you're coming along, well done. Um, this is huge, actually, guys. We're doing a, an episode with an audio, a live audience and the First Minister of Scotland, you know, less than six months after we launched. My head is actually is exploding with the logistics of it all, but I think I think we're actually getting there. Gauge your level of excitement, Andy McKeever. Well, I think I mean, look, this about six months ago, as you know, there were a, a couple of phone calls 
uh, between the three of us one week, uh, and then the next day we recorded our first podcast. Yeah. Um, and I think we wanted to put together something where politicians and former politicians felt they could come on uh, and speak in a long format and have a conversation with people who wanted to have a conversation. Um, not, it's not an interview. We're not trying to trip people up. Mm. We want to talk to politicians about the issues that are actually on people's minds. And we want to talk to them in a non-partisan way. Jeff's from a uh, nationalist background. I'm from a unionist background. Hopefully a lot of times the listeners couldn't actually tell that because both of us just say what we think and we're not partisan. And I think what we've done in the first six months is offered that platform to the point where we are getting very high-level politicians to come on and talk to us and have that sort of conversation. And obviously the highest-level politician of all mm. uh, in Scotland so far is Hamza Yusuf. Yeah, pat's on the yeah. back all right. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a real feather in our cap and mm. really looking forward to the, to the session. A couple of things, firstly... Um, let's get the business stuff out of the way. Still not getting paid for this podcast. <laughs> I know. Uh, Sorry and, about uh, that. I, None I, of us. I'm, 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 I know. I'm, More sponsors, please. More sponsors, please. Come on. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not just Aberdeen. I'm not just Aberdeen by name. I'm, I'm a frugal Aberdonian by nature. So that 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 kind of irks me still somewhat. But secondly, let, let's... And I've got camping gear to pay for. Decathlon doesn't yeah. pay for itself, let me tell you. You need to pay for more luxurious holidays. That's what you need. Uh, clearly, yeah. I, I was going to just say. Um, secondly, let's let's thank Hamza Yusuf for doing this. You know, yeah, he's a new definitely. first minister, and he has got a hell of a lot on his plate just now, as we're about to discuss uh, uh, later on in the podcast. And the fact he's willing to do this um, is great, and uh, and uh, I think he'll be a really good guest. And I think you know his his. Uh, broadcasting his interview performances have been really good. I think we want to try and tease out of him just a little bit more about what his vision is for the country, what his vision is for his government, because I don't necessarily think we've got there yet, but good on him for doing it. Really mm. grateful, and it should be a cracking, cracking show. Here, here. Uh, we're looking forward to it. And uh, yes, yeah, so we'll record that in, on uh, Tuesday the 15th, and it'll be available for you if you're not coming along to be in the audience, obviously. It'll be available for you to listen to on Wednesday the 16th. Um, you mentioned, Andy, there that we, you know, we invite politicians on, past and present, and potentially future uh, at some point as well. Uh, last week we had Fergus Ewing on the podcast, of course, the SNP, MSP, um, I mean, who has been really quite vocal in the last few months um, of his criticism, particularly, I think it's fair to say, of policies being pursued as a result of the uh, of the agreement with the Greens. Uh, in any case, that episode obviously still available for you to listen, but loads of you, loads of you were in touch uh, after listening to that. So I just want to read some of these emails because we love hearing from you. Uh, Kevin says, hi, Callum and Jeff and Andy. Really great podcast. I've been listening since episode one, and it's been a breath of fresh air to have such an informed, critical perspective on Scottish politics, long overdue. Um, I'm just going to add the usual sidebar. Well done, Kevin. Compliments, get your email read out. Uh, Kevin goes on, I particularly enjoyed the last episode with Fergus Ewing. As a Highlander from Sutherland, exiled in Edinburgh, it was fantastic to hear Fergus speaking up for Highlands and Islands and rural Scotland more broadly with a clear understanding of the needs of rural communities. As it happens, I was en route up the A9 on Thursday with my family while listening to the podcast, and Fergus's compelling case for uh, duelling the route when we encountered a serious, uh, though thankfully not fatal, accident. It really emphasised the importance of the issue and the need for better, safer infrastructure, particularly in the North. Uh, loving the podcast, keep up the good work, keep raising critical issues that need to be discussed. And Kevin says, looking forward to seeing you in Edinburgh in a couple of weeks. 
Um, thanks, Kevin. Likewise, I think that's, I mean, that's exactly what you were saying, Andy. Issues that are important to people is what we want to discuss with those who uh, have the um, chance to, to make a difference. Um, let's go on. This person is calls himself Political Poet. Hello, guys. First of all, loving the show. <laughs> it's really catching on this. The only podcast... <laughs> Scottish politics that offers genuine well-rounded political discourse and analysis from across the divide I feel obliged to say that knowing the warning from Callum about yeah don't say that Uh, right uh, they go on I guess my question is around when a Green Party MSP or prominent member may be coming on the show uh, as Cal- or as Callum alluded to in the recess episode, which featured a grand total of zero Greens. Again, I will add, everyone was invited. Uh, every MSP was invited. And I should say the Lib Dems also didn't send any, any responses back on that. Um, think all the show is seriously missing to add uh, to a plethora of incredibly insightful guests is a Green MSP. Being held to account, says political poet, for their performance in government. Uh, well, I actually can say, coincidentally, that as of about 12 hours ago, um, the invitation has been extended to the Green Party. Obviously, that's not a particularly long time for them to respond, so we'll wait a response from them. But thank you. Uh, Tim says it was refreshing to hear Fergus Ewing attempt to restore the balance. He says, being of a yes-friendly persuasion, but aware of Scotland's responsibility to achieve balance between climate and green issues and the people of Scotland have a good standard of living, it was refreshing uh, and honest. An absolute leader, says Tim. Uh, David says, brilliant episode. Fergus Ewing got a huge response, basically, is what I'm saying, Jeff. Uh, he, I mean, he, he speaks very clearly. He speaks very passionately about <coughs> basically everything that he, that he wants to sort of campaign on. Yeah, I... I'll make a bit of a reveal here, which I'm not allowed to do, probably, but I'm going to do it anyway. um, We've got a WhatsApp group, as I think we've talked about before. Mm. And when Fergus starts uh, speaking, uh, I did WhatsApp the two of you and say, just shut up, guys, let him go. This is gold dust. I mean, it was, in terms of a podcast and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and news agenda making, it was just brilliant. But actually, you know, I reflected on his podcast and his contribution. And yes, there was some colourful rhetoric. Yes, there were some maybe turns of phrases that perhaps um, were a bit OTT. But fundamentally, what he was saying rung true. And it's clearly rung true with the listeners and the viewers mm. of the, the podcast. And I just wonder if I'm in the SMP hierarchy just now, I'm going, okay, he actually has a bit of a point here mm. uh, to some of what he was saying. And I don't expect the SMP to turn around and say, yes, Fergus, you were right all along and and uh, will now change course. But equally, I do think they need to bake that into their plans going forward. I mean, what he said is what I'm picking up from a lot of people around the country just now, you know, in conversations and pubs uh, uh, and so on. And so I do think uh, there's a time to take stock of what he's actually saying and the key tenets of his arguments. Do you know one thing I think is interesting, right, is that I was thinking about this. I mean, obviously, I, I am where I am this week up in the Western Isles. And um, Scotland is not only one country. Scotland is, is really diverse. And I think really what Fergus is highlighting and the sort of thing Fergus is talking about is um, becoming more of a problem because of what I think goes back to the independence referendum, actually. Because I think in order to promote Scottish independence, you to a degree you have to talk about Scotland as one thing. Um, and I think we've become delocalised and deregionalised. You'll very rarely hear the SNP talk about Edinburgh or Glasgow or the Highlands or the North East or whatever. It's always Scotland, Scotland, Scotland. And I think that has... Um, there are advantages to that, obviously. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong in all... Uh, 
in all circumstances. But I think what that has done is it has encouraged a perception that everything across Scotland is the same, and it's clearly not the same. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked a lot in the last couple of weeks after the um, after the by elections down south, particularly uh, Boris Johnson's old seat, which was deemed to have been held by the Tories because of the of of uh, Sadiq Khan's Ulez policy. I mean, I'm sitting here in a very, very small community where there are two buses a day to Stornoway. Now, you have to own a car if you live here. You can't not own a car if you live here. And there are lots and lots of places in Scotland where that is the case. Now, yes, you can put in electric vehicle charge points and so on, and I'm you know, I have an electric vehicle um, myself. So, you know, these things are, are all possible. But there is no one-size-fits-all policy. It's not like sitting in Byers Road in Glasgow where you can get a bus or a tube every five minutes and get into town. Yeah. Scotland is a very diverse and different place and you have to be able to govern with nuance. Um, and I think that's perhaps, and again, we'll, we will obviously we'll speak to Hamza about this when uh, we have the podcast in a couple of weeks, but that ability to govern with nuance mm. is becoming a really big issue in Scotland. As I've said before, I think the rural-urban divide is bigger now than it has been in my lifetime. It's a big problem. Really interesting. Yeah, I, I just want to add to that, if I may, uh, Callum. Yeah, go for uh, it. Uh, Andy makes a really interesting point. After the 2011 election, which the SNP got a majority, I, I, I have this memory of Bernard Ponsonby, STV political editor at the time, saying that the scale of the SNP's success was unprecedented. He said it's, it's clear now the SNP is a party of the urban and the rural, of the north and the south and the east and the west, something mm. to that effect. Mm. And that, of course, was after four years of being in minority government, deliberately setting out, I can tell you it was deliberate because I was there as part of the strategy uh, and executing it, to ensure that we had a big geographical spread, not just in terms of ministerial visits, but in terms of policy announcements. Um, we talked about the Aberdeen Western Peripheral Route uh, before. Uh, Alex Salmon made a virtue of making sure that when he came back up north to Stricken in the uh, Buchan in the northeast of Scotland, he would always stop off on the way, whether it be uh, Perth, whether it be in Dundee or Aberdeen, uh, and make a virtue of making an announcement or a visit to a business. He was in Inverness all the time, mm. loved staying there. Um, and he made a point of trying to be a, a First Minister for all of Scotland. Now, I want to pay a bit of tribute to Hamza Yusuf's administration. And something that Fergus didn't say, say last week was that that crisis summit on the A9 um, that he held, actually, Marie McCallum went up there, you know, mm. the Net Zero Cabinet and Transport Cabinet Secretary. She actually went up there to, to, to speak to... Um, let's be honest you, a very hostile audience. Uh, and I think that's a really good indication. I've also been really impressed with uh, Neil Gray, Cabinet Secretary of Economy, really getting out and about there. I think the trick now is to take that clear, clear willingness to engage in all communities around Scotland and back it up with real policy and vision for each of these different regions. Because Andy's absolutely right. Scotland is not one country. It's many different subsections of a very vibrant uh, uh, cultural and uh, uh, different business uh, communities and I think that they need to get out there and do that um, uh, much more and, and I, I have been reasonably impressed with what I've seen so far in that respect they just need to add in that little bit of vision behind mm. it mm. Keep your emails coming always hello at hollywoodsources.com especially if you've got tickets for the 
recording with Hamza Yusuf in a couple of weeks. Uh, as Phil does, he got in touch to say, I've got my question prepared as well. Um, and Nairn has been in touch to say, secured my tickets for Edinburgh, so I'll sh- see you all there, uh, which we're very excited about. So thank you for that. Thanks for your enthusiasm and your excitement. Right, shall we start then uh, this week's uh, look at the issues in politics today by looking to Rutherglen and Hamilton West. This, of course, was the seat of Margaret Ferrier, who was an SNP MP, then had to sit as an independent MP after being kicked out of the Scottish National Party. She was suspended from the House of Commons for breaking COVID lockdown rules, and now she has lost her seat entirely after a vote by constituents. It means a by-election is on the way. The earliest that can happen is the 5th of October. 11,896 people in Rutherglen and Hamilton West signed the recall petition, which is the method by which constituents can remove an MP from office. So we turn to the implications of this. Um, Andy, is this... Is this a straight battle between the SNP and Labour? I'm just, how, how are the political parties like squaring up in Rutherglen and Hamilton West ahead of the by-election? Uh, yeah, it's a straight battle. Um, and it's a really interesting battle because, you know, there was a period of time probably from sort of January to, I would say, June, maybe late May, June, where there was a clear ascendancy in the polls by Scottish Labour um, in, in alliance with the ascendancy in the polls by UK Labour. Um, and things were, you know, things were looking much shakier for the SNP. There were even polls which started to suggest that Labour were drawing neck and neck in terms of uh, potential Westminster seats um, and, you know, uh, suggestions that going into 2026, maybe we've got a viable opportunity to see a change of government and Anas Sarwar as First Minister. And I think that those um, that expectation has probably dampened over the last couple of months. Labour's poll ascendancy has plateaued. Uh, I think that's clear to see. Um, the SNP's polling has stabilised. Um, and I think it leaves us with quite an interesting political picture. I think one thing to always bear in mind is that the SNP is polling in the high 30% of the vote after a decade and a half in power mm. and during a time where their immediate previous first minister uh, is under police investigation. If you put those things together and then look at the SNP's poll rating, it's actually pretty remarkable. And it's a lesson for Labour in how hard it will be to dislodge the SNP. This is not going to come to them. They've got to grab this. It's not going to come to them. As I've said before many times, there's soft unionists and there's soft nationalists, and Labour have already got the soft unionists back. They're all people who were voting Tory, but actually are just wanting to vote for the party who's most likely to stop India F2, and they now think that's Labour because they think Keir Starmer's going to be in Downing Street. So they've got them back. But if Labour think they're just going to continue to get a drift of people who voted SNP but are not necessarily dyed-in-the-wool nationalists and card-carrying members, then they're wrong. This vote is sticky, and it is sticking with the SNP against all odds and despite what's going on. And it turns Rutherland and Hamilton West into a really, really important test. If Labour don't win this by-election, I'm sure they'll say that everything is fine. But if Labour don't win this by-election, they will be absolutely gutted, and they'll wonder what the hell is going on. (laughs) 
<laughs> and, and always with by-elections. Well, I mean, we, it's never too early to start the analysis, is it? But uh, Paul Hutchin from the Daily Record suggests that a modest, w- a modest win for Anna Sarwar's party would be put down to mid-term voter anger directed towards a tired government. He says, Labour needs the sort of result which, if translated into a national swing, would see them picking up over 20 seats at a general election. Do you agree, Jeff, that, that actually the size of the result is going to be really important in dictating the narrative here? <laughs> I've fought a lot of by-elections, guys. Uh, I, I've, I've um, lost a fair few by-elections. Um, a win is a win is a win. And at the end of the day, politics is the ultimate results business. Um, but I understand what Paul's saying, and I do agree with it to a certain extent, because the expectations are thus... That there is um, uh, uh, certainly pressure on Labour to deliver. Also, think Andy's analysis there is really interesting. I mean, the SNP's vote is pretty strong, um, uh, despite all the difficulties that he mentioned, which is quite astonishing in itself. However, uh, I actually think we've got to remember that by-elections are very strange and unique beasts and they can be fought on a whole range of different issues or indeed just one issue. You just don't know what the electorate are thinking. But here is some wonderful non-scientific analysis for you. And I say non-scientific just in case there's any of those um, people out there like John Curtis who's saying, what is Jeff talking about? You haven't got a clue. Right, so... Um, 2019, Margaret Ferrier, SNP candidate, wins the election in Rutherglen uh, with 23,775 votes. That's 44.2% of the uh, electorate in Rutherglen. The Labour candidate uh, polled about 5,000 less uh, Mm -hmm. than that. Now, what's significant about yesterday's petition to me is uh, around 12,000, just shy of 12,000 people have... Uh, indicated that they want to get shot of Margaret Ferrier. Now, my guess is the vast majority of those 12,000 folk aren't the SNP supporters, right? Um, my guess is that the majority of them, let's say for the sake of argument, 10,000 of that 12,000 have been motivated to uh, sign the petition because they're going to back Labour. If you accept that there's going to be a lower turnout, and the turnout in 2019 was 65%. Let's just say for the sake of argument, you look at recent by-elections, around 50% for uh, a a by-election. You're looking at around about 19,000 there or give or take wins this by-election. That 10,000 that you could argue, and again, this is non-scientific, is there potentially for Labour means that they're almost halfway, sorry, over halfway there already. Now, that that is a complete you know, we're, draw- we're comparing apples and pears and that's the mm. petition, it's not the by-election. But I'm just saying that clearly there's a motivated section of that constituency that's willing to give um, uh, what happened before the incumbents a bit of a kicking. Now, some might disagree with that and say some SNP supporters signed the petition as well. Fair enough. My point is, is that if Labour win this and win this well, going back to Paul Hutchins' uh, analysis... That is really problematic for Hamza Youssef. Yes, he'll say, oh, this, uh, the circumstances of Margaret Ferrier and COVID. Yes, look, we're a, a mid-term government. That, you know, all, always uh, incumbents get a bit of a kicking, all that stuff. But if they do get a result, Labour, that means that 20 seats would go at a general election, he is under serious, serious pressure. However, the converse is also true. 
if the SNP could find a way, and bearing in mind the SNP canvassing and the, the electoral machine, the basics there in terms of what they do, in terms of getting vote out, is second to none. If they could somehow squeeze a, a narrow victory or maybe just a, a very modest loss, he can take a lot of solace from that going into the general election. So this by-election is absolutely crucial. Uh, and I can't remember in recent times a more important by-election in Scottish politics. So I think this is going to be a fascinating contest. Can't wait to see what the parties go on in terms of their key issues. Can't wait to see what the uh, the Tories do as well, because mm. the Tories actually recorded a, a not insignificant um, uh, 8,000 votes. What, what do the Tory votes do? Do they just stay at home or do they transfer to Labour? To Andy's point, there's enough there probably to get Labour over the line if there's transfers on a unionist vote. Utterly fascinating to see what happens. Let me just uh, let me just take on from Professor Sir Jeff Aberdeen there. Um, <laughs> He's a Jeffologist. That's what I'm I calling can, him. If I can, is he? Is it that? Oh, now I mean that is absolutely world class, Callum. Thank a Jeffologist. So I mean, we like that. Come on. Can I just say as well? I've been we up do like that. Well done. This morning, which is a lot earlier than usual. And that's what you get. You're welcome. Well, seven o'clock's like the middle of the morning for me. You got to get up <laughs> earlier do. to get things done. Um, uh, world class, world class from Thank both. You. But listen, um, on the Tory thing briefly, it's an easy out for them. They're just going to say, you know, it was a straight fight between Labour and the SNP. It's been an SNP seat before that. It was a Labour seat before that. It was an SNP seat. The vote doesn't matter. We got squeezed, blah de blah. And they'll get. They, they won't be the story. That'll be fine. Let me offer one other, um, one other thought as well, uh, not to completely contradict what I said earlier on, but. Um, Expectation management is really important for Scottish Labour. I still think it is very difficult to believe that Scottish Labour will emerge from the general election next year with more seats than the SNP. It's not going to happen. The SNP is almost certainly still going to be the largest party uh, from Scotland at Westminster. It could be close, but I think if you were putting your mortgage on anything, you'd be daft to put it on Labour as opposed to the SNP. Now, because of that, I appreciate what Paul's saying, and um, uh, Paul uh, Hutchin is a very, very good analyst of these things, I think. Mm. I think he's right in terms of what uh, he's saying. However, if Labour did record a massive, massive result, which started to point towards a win at the general election, if they then don't follow through with a win at the general election, that then presents its own problems as well. So there are some advantages to just steady as she goes if you don't think you're actually going to manage to go over the line at the general but you think that you can use the general election as a a a footstool effectively to get to the scottish election in 2026 and have a chance there then there is some merit in doing well but not doing not doing so so well that it then looks as though you failed when you get to the general election which i as i say i don't think labor are going to win that election in scotland i think the snp are yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in that, Andy. I, I, I wish I had your confidence for obvious reasons. <laughs> and that's why I think this by-election is so important. Um, if Labour do win and win well, they will take momentum. And momentum in politics is the thing you want. Um, uh, and uh, if, they get, if they get that momentum, uh, it could lead to them winning the election in Scotland. I think the only other thing I'd add is, guys, I think this is going to be a very, very, you know, um, hotly contested, sometimes mm. hostile 
contested by-election. You know, the SNP will throw everything at trying to, to, to maximise their vote. Equally, for the reasons we've just outlined, Labour really need to win it to show that they're back in Scotland. I think it's going to get down and dirty. And I think, uh, to be honest with you, for folk like us, it's brilliant. <laughs> uh, we'll be all over it on, on the podcast as you might imagine uh, just to sort of wrap up this particular section I was just going to mention on timings uh, just so we all are clear on how this works um, it is the chief whip of the former MPs party who will request that the speaker of the House of Commons put the question to MPs about whether to agree to a by-election once MPs agree the speaker then issues a warrant to the Clerk of the Crown, it's all very grand procedure, who then finally sends the writ to the returning officer. Uh, That's usually issued within three months of the seat becoming vacant. That process is called moving the writ, so you will hear a lot about that in the next uh, few weeks. Until an election takes place, an MP of the same party and of a nearby constituency will manage constituency matters uh, in the, the seat as well. So as we mentioned... Basically, October time, I think, is the is the most likely bet on, on when this will actually take place, which comes with its own pertinence around political party conferences as well and could really sort of direct the narrative of uh, of those as well, I should say. Um, Sorry, Paul, Calum, just, just if I may just on that point that you make, because you've made a really good point, actually, you know, just, just to emphasise what we're saying. Mm. This will be Hamza Yusuf's first national conference in yeah. October. Yeah. Now, uh, depending on the timing of the, the by-election, um, let's imagine, for the sake of argument, it's it's just an advance, and he managed to, to win or, or do better than expected. You know, the, the, the atmosphere at that conference uh, is going to be so <laughs> dictated by the success or otherwise of that by-election, even if it's afterwards. So he could have a really good conference, um, and people are saying, right, yeah, he's got the vision, I'm really... I'm really kind of pleased. I now know what this guy's about, you know. And then they lose the by-election. It just undermines all the good work. So the timing of this by-election is going to be massively important. And equally, you can say make the same arguments for Labour as well. Yeah. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on it on the podcast for you, of course. Uh, do stay with us over the next couple of months on Hollywood Sources. Make sure you're following and subscribed. So yes, we've got our special episode with Hamza Yusuf coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, that is being made possible by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to be Measured campaign, our new sponsor on Hollywood Sources. Here is Graham Littlejohn from the Scotch Whiskey Association to explain more. Pretty simply, the Made to be Measured campaign is... Uh, the Scotch whisky industry's uh, campaign to educate consumers on on what it is they're they're drinking. Um, the industry's had a long history of promoting responsible consumption and trying to tackle alcohol misuse. We want everybody who chooses to consume alcohol to do so responsibly. But the Scottish government's own data suggests that only a third of adults in Scotland know what the low risk responsible consumption guidelines are. You know, the chief medical officer has set these out. Adults are supposed to drink no more than 14 units of alcohol a week, but only a third of people know that that is the guidelines. So hopefully this campaign will not only give people some more information on on those guidelines, but also educate consumers a bit more on how much alcohol is in kind of your your most popular drinks in pubs and and in, in, that they're enjoying at home as well. Because a lot of people don't realise that there's more alcohol in some of the most common drinks uh, than than you might originally think. 14 units per week break that down for us into sort of real life terms if you like what does that actually mean when i'm having a glass of wine or a dram or whatever 
Yeah, so a unit of alcohol is is a is a fairly scientific measure, isn't it? So it's it's essentially ten milliliters of of alcohol, of pure alcohol. Um, but how breaking that down into what you might enjoy at home? So um, a single dram, a twenty five milliliter measure of Scotch whiskey at forty percent ABV, that is one unit of alcohol. So that's fairly simple. You pour yourself a dram of whiskey, that's one unit of alcohol. You can have fourteen those and of those in a week, and that is within the low risk drinking guidelines. It gets slightly more complicated as you look at other alcoholic drinks, though. So take uh, a pint of beer, for example, uh, a pint of 4.5% ABV beer, which is pretty standard in a pub. That actually contains 2.6 units of alcohol. So if you, if you have six of those in a week, you've taken yourself over the low risk drinking guidelines, which is something we want to try to avoid. And then with wine, again, a large glass of wine in a pub is typically 175 milliliters these days. Take 12% ABV, that contains 2.1 units of alcohol. So again, seven glasses of that wine will take you over the 14 units. Want to try to avoid that. So these are the kind of you know alcohol maths, if you like, that consumers have to understand. And hopefully the campaign will educate consumers a bit more so they're making more responsible choices when they go to the bar or they're enjoying alcohol at home. Our listeners will note that uh, one of the key messages during the Made to be Measured campaign is to savour your scotch. And I think that's interesting because you are clearly and understandably, you know, indicating that this is a drink to be enjoyed. And I suppose that is a key point in all of this, too, in terms of knowing what you're drinking will actually help with enjoyment. Look, I mean, we're, I would say this, very proud of Scotch whisky. I think Scotland should be very proud of the industry. It's it's one of the things that Scotland is most known for around the world, producing a high quality spirit like Scotch whisky. It's made to be measured and it's there to be savoured because, you know, by law, uh, to become Scotch whisky, it has to mature in oak casks in Scotland for at least three years. That's a long time to wait for the, the high quality spirit of Scotch whisky. And so when you are enjoying it, the people who craft Scotch whisky across Scotland, they want you to enjoy it responsibly and to savour the kind of care and attention that goes into to making Scotch whisky. And that's a spirit which is then taken out to the, the, the entire world. You know, it's unbelievable that Scotch whisky is now in a, nearly 180 countries around the world. 53 bottles of Scotch whisky are exported every single second. It's a phenomenal kind of uh, success story for Scotland. But we always wanted to be enjoyed responsibly. And that's why Scotch whisky is made to be measured and that's what the campaign is going to address over the coming months still to come on the podcast we're discussing energy after rishi sunak was in aberdeenshire this week uh, announcing uh, licenses for north sea oil and gas exploration will continue and a carbon capture scheme as well so we'll discuss that before the end of the podcast uh, stay with us this is hollywood sources If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign. A dram of whiskey, of course, is one of life's little pleasures. But have you ever wondered how many units of alcohol are in the glass? According to the Scottish Government, around 8 out of 10 of us in Scotland don't know how many units of alcohol are contained in common drinks like a pint of beer or a glass of wine. The Made to Be Measured campaign seeks to change that For example, a single measure of Scotch whisky, Scotland's world-famous national drink, contains one unit of alcohol, while a pint of average-strength beer contains more than double that. Scotch whisky, it's made to be measured. Savour your scotch and find out more at scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. This is Hollywood Sources. Thanks very much for being with us this week. Right, let's turn to energy, shall we? Very much a dominating theme of the week because Rishi Sunak has defended a planned expansion of oil and gas drilling in the North Sea. He says it is entirely consistent with the government's goal to reach net zero by 2050. He's also confirmed locations for two new carbon capture usage and storage clusters, with billions expected to be pumped into the schemes. Analysis from the guys in a sec. First, here's the Prime Minister. I think it's really important for everyone to recognise that even in 2050, when we are at net zero, it is forecast that around a quarter of our energy needs will still come from oil and gas. That's why technologies like carbon capture and storage are important. But what is important then is that we get that oil and gas in the best possible way. And that means getting it from here at home. Better for our energy security, not reliant on foreign dictators. Better for jobs, for example, 100,000 supported here in Scotland, but also better for the climate. Because if we're going to need it, far better to have it here at home rather than shipping it here from halfway around the world with two, three, four times the amount of carbon emissions versus the oil and gas we have here at home. So it is entirely consistent with our plans to get to net zero. Well, joining the podcast, Alistair Thomas, who's Europe editor at Energy Voice. Hello, Alistair. Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me on. No, pleasure. Thanks for being here. Um, Let's start. I'm going to start with a basic one, I think, hopefully. Who thinks this is good news? Who thinks this is bad news? And and crucially, what is the news? (laughs) Well, I think everyone who uh, were in certain camps already will probably be retrenched into those camps. But yeah, as as we heard from the Prime Minister there, support for further North Sea licensing, uh, what we had this week, saying he's going to support hundreds of new licenses, which uh, the argument from the UK government being this would underpin energy security, and that has come under a degree of 
scrutiny and I think welcomed by most in the industry. Uh, there's been quite a lot of discourse around it in the last 48 hours. But I, I suppose what, what comes to mind, I mean, when we have politicians making announcements like this, I mean, if you look at the last 18 months or so, government policy in the North Sea has been quite uh, unpredictable, I think it's fair to say. And if Labour come in as projected, then they've obviously promised more change. And that means more instability for an industry that relies on steady policy to make long-term investments. In, in terms of, of what the Prime Minister announced today, uh, you know, in terms of the the, the new licences, uh, to an extent, you know, yes, we're obviously we'd obviously be more in control of our own supply if we can produce more here, and uh, new licences would be a way of 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 doing that. But I, I think what is important to keep in mind is, well, I suppose we had research from Wood Mackenzie, the research house, in June around the time that Keir Starmer made his comments up in Edinburgh, and they, and, and assuming that existing licences won't be touched, uh, Wood Mac said that preventing new licensing would be largely symbolic and it would have minimal impact really on the UK, and that's because the main resource left in the North Sea is in fields which have been discovered already. And they said that yet to find prospective resources is just one billion barrels of oil equivalent. The remainder is about seven billion, which is all kind of in existing fields or sanction ready projects like your Rosebanks, like your Cambos. So on that basis, perhaps a case could be made um, around stopping uh, certain parts of new licensing, uh, keeping in mind there is a big difference between developing new fields, which have been previously discovered, and approving of new exploration licenses. And I guess that comes back to a degree of confusion, confusing language, interchangeable language from certain politicians. When we interchange things like no new drilling, no new fields, no new exploration, um, these all mean very different things to the industry. And I think some, some further clarity might be needed, particularly, I think, on the Labour camp uh, as regards the future of the North Sea. Can I ask you, Alistair, just about... So I was going to say, I was going to ask you, Alistair, about carbon capture for a second. Um, I remember the first day that I walked in Alex Salmon's uh, constituency office in 2005 as a as a, a part-time worker while I was at university and there was this file called the Golden Eye, Golden Eye case file and it wasn't about James Bond, which was rather disappointing. It was actually about the pipeline, as you well know, um, that will be used and repurposed for carbon capture. So this has been a long time coming. Can you tell us just a little bit about the importance and significance of the carbon capture announcement at ACORN as well uh, for Scotland and indeed the UK's energy security needs? Yeah, and, and Shell have a track history of naming their fields after Bond villains um, and their discoveries. So there is a, a James Bond link there, uh, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, look, fantastic, long-awaited news for the Northeast, and the aim is for this, to, the benefits of this, to be felt far beyond that across Scotland, the UK, and into Europe. I mean, what what this represents, what Acorn represents, is an opportunity to build up a new industry here, uh, one that will help the climate while using the skills and the infrastructure that already are housed within the oil and gas sector in the Northeast. And this week, yeah, as you said, uh, Confirmation Acorn will become one of the first four CCS clusters up and running in the UK by 2030. And the first two were announced in 2021. Uh, and this week we had Acorn uh, announced and Viking CCS in the Humber also confirmed. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, it, this is a, the culmination of quite a long road for Peterhead in particular, which has been trying for, for decades now to get a CCS project running. We had um, one project cancelled in 
2007 and another in 2015, two big blows there. And meanwhile, we've had other countries, uh, yes, steal a margin as to a degree uh, on this. So uh, a great lift of frustration for the business community, finally getting this announcement, finally being able to get on with the job. And, and I think in terms of when you, when you think about how important this is, I think what's really important to underline about ACORN and, and perhaps the reason why everyone thought this should have been selected sooner is, is the potential it has to, to ramp up and store more in the vast kind of depleted gas reservoirs of the North Sea. The ambition is to use that resource to not only you know, impact carbon emissions in the UK, but ship carbon in from overseas, from Europe. And that would build out this industry even further. And clearly that will have significant impacts, uh, benefits to our climate goals, but also a significant industrial benefit for the Northeast in this, in this energy transition journey. Mm. I'm so struck, Alistair, when you run through the various projects and the various timelines and those that have been announced and then cancelled and stood down and stood up and announced and not announced, in the, in the actual zoomed out grand scheme of things, is there progress being made here? It sounds remarkably erratic. So in terms of actually pursuing the transition and heading for net zero, what is the, the big picture on where we sit right now? Well, I, I think you're, you're right to mention the delays for sure. And I, th- I think what we, what we must keep in mind, and we're on a political podcast, obviously we had three prime ministers uh, last year, and uh, that is not going to, that, that will not have an insignificant impact on things like uh, one billion pound government funding competitions. But in terms of the big picture, look, uh, ACORN CCS, the first phase of that, is looking to store something in the region of 5 million tonnes of CO2 annually, by, uh, by 2030. Now, by 2035, in order to get to where we want to be for net zero, we're looking at something like 50 million tons, right? What that basically means is we're going to need a lot more projects like this up and running. This is the start of a long journey on CCS for this country and, and indeed for the world. Um, so what we've had recently, we've had the North Sea Transition Authority, that's the obviously the North Sea regulator, announce a CCS licensing round, think oil and gas, but around specifically for finding sites for carbon storage. And we recently had uh, awards issued for that. So the next steps will be getting those up and running um, and yeah, build out and probably more licensing rounds like it so that these other projects can get going. I'm not quite sure what they've projected in terms of how many we might need, but we're certainly going to need many, many more projects like this. And we are finally getting uh, some degree of, of movement. Uh, and I think that's why you've seen the reaction you've seen this week in terms of the elation around ACORN. In terms of that project more specifically, they had hoped for um, first storage in 2026. Uh, peak jobs, I think, had been projected for around 2031. Clearly, things have moved on a bit in terms of timelines. So we don't quite know where that will be and hopefully that will become through clear through the, the government negotiations that are going on. But yes, to answer your question, I, I think progress is finally coming. It hasn't been quick enough so far, but hopefully we can get the ball moving now. I just wonder if you could reflect uh, before you go on the future for the northeast of Scotland. I mean, obviously you and I both live up here. And uh, when I moved back from Edinburgh uh, a couple of years ago, uh, it was pretty miserable in terms of the outlook economically, particularly around um, uh, energy and, and, and oil and gas. Now, since then, we've now been awarded an investment zone uh, um, uh, from the UK and Scottish governments. Uh, there has been a just transition run from the Scottish government of £500 million. We've got oil and gas licences back on, um, as we know. 
we've got our acorn carbon capture and storage and we've also got proximity to a lot of the uh, a majority of the Scotland licenses for offshore wind and that's particularly important for floating offshore wind would you say that the, the future is bright and now that uh, Prime Minister and First Ministers have said to us in the past that they want Aberdeen in the northeast to be the net zero capital of Europe. Do you see that being fully realised now, uh, given all these positive interventions? I think the the amount of positive interventions we've seen are, are, are very welcome, and I think the 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 mood from the business community versus say twelve months ago has is lifted significantly uh, now pinch of salt with everything and of course there's always more that we can be doing i wouldn't want to undermine very significant challenges that we have ahead um people who care about this issue and they should still be asking their msps mps what are we doing about reforming the electricity market what are we doing about building grid infrastructure in scotland to you know connect these massive offshore wind hubs off scotland to cities across the uk what are we doing to get our port infrastructure going so that um, companies can be manufacturing here rather than uh, overseas, as has been the case with fixed wind? Now, all of that said, yeah, um, there, it, what we've seen in the past kind of several months is, you know, investment zone, uh, certain freeport stasis is granted to well uh, areas like the Cromarty Firth in the north, and 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 to, to to see what's been going on today with Acorn this week with Acorn. Um, it is very positive. It is it is brighter. What we need to see is significant levels of investment into this part of the world in order to uh, ensure that we have a, a thriving energy industry beyond 2030. I mean, if you look at some of the statistics, it's quite stark in terms of the levels of investment we need to attract into Aberdeen. And if we don't achieve that, then we could be seeing a, a, a tail off economically. But on the, the flip side of that, and to your point, Jeff, there's a real prize that awaits the region if we can, if we can attract that investment, which is what we've been kind of seeing this week and, and further back. So, yeah, overall, I think it's positive. There's still a lot of work to do. Thanks very much for your time, Alistair. Really good to have you on. All right. Thank well, thanks you. for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. Great to have Alistair just setting the context there. Um, Jeff, I'm going to come to you first on this one. I, I mean, I, I woke up in a in a cold sweat last night. Because I thought to myself, I'm really worried. I'm really worried that Jeff might be about to agree with a Conservative Prime Minister on this podcast and something the Conservatives <laughs> are doing in the northeast of Scotland. Am, am I right or am I wrong? You're right to be worried. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, look, 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 you know, uh, I wouldn't have announced the oil and gas licences in the way that he announced it, but he's you know, doing that, you know, this uh, we're going to max out um, oil and gas uh uh, reserves and he's doing that to create dividing lines with the the Labour Party and the uh, SNP, which we'll come to uh, shortly. But you know, first and foremost, um, I think people have got to remember. And I've seen a lot of commentary, and it's really lazy about this net zero. How are we going to get to net zero if we do oil and gas? There's a great piece by Ed Conway uh, from Sky News, which I'd recommend to anyone um, yeah, uh, when he talks about this. Look, all plans uh, for net zero have oil and gas. Uh, included in it. It is net zero, not zero. Net zero is really important here. And what yesterday's announcement did, and as Alistair alluded to earlier on, it's really uh, given confidence and long-term security to the industry because I have been picking up through uh, various uh, clients and their contacts that that the situation with oil and gas, a lack of certainty around future pipeline projects was really causing investment decisions. Indeed, one reasonably significant uh, company was 
uh, considering making um, significant scale backs in terms of its jobs um, uh, employed. And so there is that certainty. But I've, as I've said many times on this podcast before, it's so, so important that we protect that critical mass. It's these guys that come up with the R&D, the innovation, the high value components for that industry. And it's those people that will be so important to do so as we transition to new energies. We're also hearing, sadly, some news, and it's around this thing called contracts for difference. I'm not going to get into it too long, but it's essentially the the, the, the financial process that companies have to go through to get onto offshore wind in particularly. But there's also other issues as well, but actually getting the steel for all the, the wind structures as well and the port optimization piece, which Alistair talked about. We need to protect and preserve what we've got so that it's in a position to transition more seamlessly than trying to create new industries at a time if oil and gas was to be prematurely ended. That's the crucial point for me. If we want to be global leaders, we want to accelerate to get to net zero, we have to protect that critical mass. Mm. Andy, the on the point of the kind of political divides here, um, you know, t- t- driving a bit of a wedge between the Conservatives and Labour and the SNP. Let's not forget where are they on energy and all of this. Uh, is this working? Because one of the one of the crucial things in all of this is that uh, Labour um, have suggested that they would not uh, they would not accept any new licences for oil and gas drilling but the licenses that Rishi Sunak's been talking about they're already they're that round is already active that's already happening so i'm just trying to work out how those two things uh, how you kind of bridge that gap is is this a real wedge between tories and labor and then bring in the snp to that as well well i actually think that yesterday's announcement might turn out to be quite good for labor I think it's what Labour wanted, because Labour's announcement, or at least maybe not what Miliband wanted, but certainly what Anas Sarwar and and probably Keir Starmer wanted, because I think what yesterday's announcement does is effectively puts these new licences in play. And if I'm reading Labour's policy correctly, which is not always a doddle, let's be honest, (laughs) but if I'm reading Labour's policy correctly, then what they're saying is when they come into power, any licences that are already granted they're going to keep. Mm. So I actually think the yesterday gives Labour a reasonable out, to be honest with you. Um, and I think it's good politics for the Tories yesterday as well, because they've got seats to hold on to in the North East, and this will help them, let's face it, uh, hold on to those seats. I think the bigger problem uh, from yesterday's announcement politically is the problem it gives the SNP. And I, you know, I think that the leadership of the SNP has got to decide which side of the fence they sit on here. I Look, there are two types of environmentalists. There's the what I would characterise as the kind of older style, traditional, stop the world and get off environmentalist. And there's the new style, change the world so that we can stay on environmentalist. And I'm the latter. I'm a change the world so we can stay on environmentalist. And, you know, I I practice environmentalism a lot in my home life. um, And, you know, in my business life, I've started a business, Zero Matters, which is specifically about getting uh, the SME community to net zero. So I'm not going to take any lessons from folk who spray paint buildings about environmentalism. You know, this is serious stuff. This is not playground politics. This is a serious uh, aim um, and a serious exercise to try to get to net zero without stopping people working, without stopping people living, without stopping people doing things. And carbon capture is a perfect uh, example of the transition. It's a perfect example of that change the world so that we can stay on environmentalism, where you accept that you have to keep 
drilling for hydrocarbons uh, in the short to medium term um, because for two reasons. One, because of energy security, but two, because the profits from those hydrocarbons are what's funding the renewables industry. Uh, and carbon capture plays a really important part in making sure that while we keep drilling for hydrocarbons, we minimise the damage that we're doing to the planet as a result. So I think this is grown-up politics. Um, I am, as listeners of this podcast will know, I am not uh, often praising the UK government, but on this occasion, they have got this right. There's nothing inconsistent about announcing new licences for hydrocarbons and announcing carbon capture at the same time. And there wouldn't be anything inconsistent with also announcing renewables at the same time as that. Mm. These are all part of the same ecosystem, if you like. And it's the ecosystem that we need to get to where we need to go. This is grown up politics now. And I think that um, you know the, the, the politicians who lead the country have to be clear on what side of the fence they sit in this. Mm. Yeah, I, I, great analysis, Andy, and uh, I, I do agree with just about everything you have said. Just to get to the politics of this, because that's essentially our raison d'etre, I understand. <laughs> um, uh, for the SNP, I'll come to Tories in a second, because I think something really important is happening. Uh, but on the uh, SNP, uh, I do feel that they've got to, as Andy says, take a grown-up, pragmatic approach uh, to this. There are 100,000 workers reliant upon oil and gas in both directly and the the supply chain indirectly. Um, And no doubt, I mean, I've been festooned with messages of um, a lot of actually um, relief that that there is a future for that industry just now. And also because, as I said earlier, they do um, by and large want to transition and to diversify to renewables when that's commercially available at scale. So they need to think about those 100,000 workers pretty closely. But there's also another political point here, purely political point on the revenues. Um, I've been looking at the the OBR and the IFS, and and this is from last year's report that suggests that cash receipts are forecast to rise to 10.6 billion in 23-24 and be an average of about 8.6 billion uh, uh, until 2027-2028. That's a hell of a lot of money, guys. Now, we've got the GERS, the, the, the Scottish Government's Economic and Revenue um, Accounts coming up pretty soon. And if the SNP sit there and go, oh, look at the revenues and what that's doing to our accounts, they say, oh, look at what's happening here. Uh, it's largely because of oil and gas. Uh, and yet they still have in their consultation a presumption against oil and gas. And I have to tell you right now, I would be uh, personally and publicly pretty critical of that position uh, because it is a bit nonsensical to sit there and say, we don't want any more oil and gas. But I tell you what, look all the revenues that are going to come. <laughs> if they're serious about being independent in the next few years, I do think they have to have a more nuanced approach uh, to this. And I really hope to see that. Now, as far as the Tories is concerned, this is fascinating. Um, I saw from Rishi Sunak this week, uh, and and it's almost a a crystallisation of what we talked about on this podcast before, that he's only got one strategy open to him really ahead of general election, that is, I'm going all out on the economy, I'm going to try and really stimulate economic uh, growth, and he's bringing energy security into that equation. And I just saw somebody, as your clip earlier uh, outlined, just said, nah, I'm doing it, I'm going for it, and Mm. there's a real clarity of vision there. 
And I find that really interesting. And what we've seen from Labour is a bit, oh, no, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely, you know, we'll, 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 we'll approve the licences that are already um, um, uh, approved, sorry, b- beforehand. Um, we'll, we'll kind of roll back on what we said originally in our document. There's a bit of indecisiveness from the Labour Party on that and a number of other issues. And I just think that's something to look out for. And if I'm the Labour Party, I need to get my, my house in order. And I've said this months ago on this podcast, they need to start coming to the table with policies and vision. And I think that's the same for the SNP as well, incidentally, because I think the Tories, by virtue of the, the perilous state they're in in the polls, are saying, you know, bugger it, we're just going to go after all this stuff and, and, and we'll see how the people judge us. There's a real benefit to that in politics, a real clear yeah. understanding. You bet your bottom dollar that most of the people watching his clips go uh, on, on, uh, on Monday night, on Tuesday, yeah, OK, um, I might not necessarily agree with everything he's saying, but at least I understand it. And yeah. that's a really vital tool in political communications, really vital tool. So one to look out for. No, that's a really good point. And it adds to what Alistair was saying there about the kind of erratic nature of the direction of travel for for parts of the country, like the northeast of Scotland, which are so dependent on things like this. And they have to deal with governments chopping and changing and going this way and that way over over you know over the such a long period of time. I think um sounds like we need to put energy firmly on the table for our conversation with Hamza Yusuf in um in a couple of weeks' time. We'll pencil that one in. Um, your thoughts very welcome on energy as well. I know you always like to discuss energy when you hear us talking about it on the podcast. So you can email us hello at hollywoodsources.com to get in touch. But I suspect it's something that we'll return to in a couple of weeks' time with the First Minister as well. And Callum, I want to um, very briefly and keep this piece in. There's a, <laughs> a chap called Sam Taylor that we contacted that contacted oh, yes. me over Twitter to question the figures that I was using. And he was absolutely right. I, 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 my turn of phrase. Um, wasn't um, accurate in what I said in terms of future forecasts. So I just want to say, Sam, thank you for that. And we would like to have you on the podcast mm, the to have a proper extended. discussion. And I'm hoping that I've captured this right because I'm quoting directly from that uh, report that I mentioned earlier on. But tell me if I'm not. But anyway, I think the point is there's going to be a hell of a lot of money coming. <laughs> <laughs> That's the summary. Uh, yeah, the invitation's out to Sam. We'll have him on at some point in the future. Uh, so yes, look out for that episode as well. Right, that just about does it for us then for today. If you've got tickets to come and see us and Hamza Yusuf in Edinburgh in a couple of weeks' time, pop us an email, share your excitement. Hello at hollywoodsources.com is the email address to get in touch. We'll be back next week, dropping into your podcast feed on Wednesday as usual. Thanks very much for being with us today, and we'll talk to you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.